Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner, and ScriptRunner is a solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. Today is the big day. I'm finally disassembling my home lab. That's the, uh, the little home data center that I built, I think, about a year ago, and that was the episode when I needed to haul it back home. My, my wife and my kid couldn't fit in the car, so they took the tram home, and so on and so on. Um, and as we get closer to moving to the new house, I, I realized I, I do need a hardware rack now in the, in, the, in the new basement to mount and install any of the future gear that the electrician feels they have a need for now. And I was about to do that yesterday. But then I was looking at my calendar. Hold on, we have the recording today. I cannot disassemble and, and, and sort of disconnect everything and then hope that I actually know where every cable goes back in on the temporary IKEA self that I'm planning on using for the next couple of weeks in order to get audio working and, and the mic preamp and everything else. So when we're done after this episode, I will turn everything off, remove everything. And if you don't see me online tomorrow, you know it failed. I was about to see, I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. I remember when you set up your home lab and it was, I think you posted a picture on Twitter and, and it's like you have your own Azure data center in, in your apartment. Uh, so you're moving that to your house. That's cool. Um, so for me, what I'm up to is also hardware related. I think I'm a bit more on the lighter side of the hardware spectrum because I, I don't very often get any new devices. So I contemplated now on getting a new monitor because uh, I've been using this 34-inch super-wide or ultra-wide, whatever you call them, uh, for eight years. So quite a long time. I love the form factor. But I, uh, I spent about a week working for my laptop uh, using the laptop monitor, which has a 4K ultra HD, whatever it's called, um, super pixel density on the laptop. So comparing that now and, and looking at this monitor, which is eight years old, I can see the clear difference. So that made me realize I need to upgrade something in my hardware stack. So yeah, I'm going to upgrade my monitor. So I'm downsizing to a 32 inch, but I'm upgrading the pixel density to a 4K. So it's surprisingly, I've not been using a 4K at all for all this time. And I think I'm getting old because I'm, I'm now sitting with the laptop screen and I'm sitting looking at this non 4K monitor. And it's such a clear difference. It's like, you know, when you started playing Super Nintendo and, and you're coming from a Nintendo 8-bit, you know, the pixel difference, that's kind of the difference I see now with my monitors. So I'm really looking forward to the new monitor arriving. But I think it's a sign of old age. Uh, but that's kind of the extent of my hardware adventures. I do not have my own Azure data center yet like you do. Uh, hopefully, I can take some takeaways from you and, and learn something here. Uh, so I can also set something cool up. But most of the time, I just click the button and I have everything in the cloud. I don't want to have all the hardware around here. Um, so for, for my audio setup, I think we talked about that in, in some episodes. Um, I've got a USB microphone and I just plug that in. And, and that's, that's everything I need, my laptop and my microphone. Um, but then there's also a tangible difference between my audio and your audio. So at some point, I, I think I'll upgrade to a UC home data center. So <laughs> when you publish your article, on everything that I need, I will read it. Sounds, sounds good. Uh, before we actually get to the episode content, I, I want to pick on something you said, the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo 8-bit. I think half in the audience, perhaps born after 1995, they're not really sure what an 8-bit Nintendo is. <laughs> and I still have fond memories of that. So if somebody has an extra, I'm willing to pay anything for that just to get to play with the, with the old games again. All righty. So today we want to dive into structured Azure functions, deployments, and monitoring. And we brought just a guest for the show. Welcome, Andrew Connell. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Man, listen to those intros. Uh, I don't know how you can go down to go down to a smaller monitor. I'm sitting here with my 49 inch, and I'm like, I don't know. I could not <laughs> go down to the, but. 
I just, yeah, I totally hear you on the data center thing. I've got, I've got my rack set up off to the side and it's just, I've got little labels on what gets plugged in. And if I had to move, it's just unplug the power, unplug about five things from the wall and ship it and then come right back and plug those things back in. And it all just, well, it all should just power back up. At least that's what it's supposed to work. <laughs> Not as clean as bicep, but anyway. Uh, yeah. So my name is Andrew Connell. Um, really appreciate you guys having me. I'm a long time Microsoft developer. Uh, I guess today we have to call ourselves professional developers since there's all this low code, no code stuff. So I'm old school.net, but spend a lot of my time in like the TypeScript world. And um, my focus these days is primarily in like the um, education space. So I work a lot on teaching professional developers how to do various things from SharePoint framework to uh, building things in Azure, building things in Teams, uh, actual Teams, stuff like that. But all from like when there's code involved, not like when there's like power platform or low code, no code stuff. It's like, I'm cracking open Visual Studio code and we're going to write some code for this stuff. Sounds really good. Um, On on your experience, and and I realize you've been working with, with with the web development space for a long time. So before we get to the actual talking about Azure Functions and everything else, do you see, especially in the low-code, no-code side, do you now see new people coming to IT and just picking up a Power App tool or starting to create Power Automate without really needing to think at all about if you, if you will, real development or professional development? Yeah, I think uh, you do see a lot of people coming into the space. I've got to, it's, just, it's hard for me to talk about this without sounding like I'm jaded. I'm not, I'm not jaded about it. Um, I, there's, some, there's some frustration with it because, you know, I guess in one sense, I'm predisposed to see the Microsoft world. I don't live so much in like what's going on in the AWS side or in the GCP side. Um, so I live mostly in the Microsoft side, which that means traditionally power platform type stuff, power apps, power automate, all that jazz. I do see a lot of people coming into that space to build those solutions. But what I see is a lot of confusion or a lot of frustration um, by companies. And I think a lot of it is self-imposed by Microsoft, where a lot of people, the message from Microsoft is so singular, especially in the Microsoft 365 developer world. It is so singularly focused that while they may not explicitly be saying this, their sales field that's talking to their customers is really putting across the message of, you don't need professional developers. You can do everything with low code, no code. And I think a lot of, I see, what I see is a lot of customers that get really frustrated in building what they think is an enterprise system using something that was not designed to build enterprise systems. I see the power platform stuff as kind of like, the glue, like that's Power Automate. And then I see Power Apps is like getting, you can build some solutions, but this isn't like, you're not gonna build a solution that is uh, like enterprise ready, scalable, blah, blah, all this kind of stuff um, that factors into a lot of like a good CI, CD process and you know, change management going forward and everything. I see customers getting a lot of fr- really frustrated and realizing that, okay, I went way down this path, but there's no real path of, well, how do I take that and how do I, you know, putting in air quotes, upsize that to a more robust solution. And there's nothing like that. So it's like, you're either going to go down one road or you're going to go to a different road. Um, I see that, I see that, I see that frustrating customers quite a bit. So I do see a lot of people coming into the marketplace. It's good for Microsoft, sells licenses, sells, you know, does consumption. Um, But I do think that the messaging is it comes across in a confusing way for customers that does get that that does frustrate a certain number of them. Not all of them, because a lot of them, those power apps things are great for uh, for like you build it once and you're going to be great going forward with them. But yeah, so when you need to get something bigger, that's why I think it, that the messaging gets a little confused. That's that's very well put, and and Toby. I, I think we are both missing SharePoint designer because that was the promise back at the time that you can actually build <laughs> solutions easily. And if you need something more, you can just open Visual Studio and build something else. Do you, do you still have it installed, Toby? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't touched <laughs> SharePoint, uh, I think for, for close to eight or nine years now, and I'm, I am all the better for it. Uh, it was a good time. 
um, you know, a decade ago, it was good fun, spent a lot of time developing solutions and, and built all kinds of stuff. Uh, but I, do I miss it? No. Do I have SharePoint, Destroyer, uh, SharePoint Designer um, installed? No. We used to call it SharePoint Destroyer because every time you opened something, you wanted to modify a master page, it went in and it modified it for you without you actually knowing that. And then, how do you call it? It customized the file or unghosted the file or whatever you called it back then. So what that meant was there was an original file. You just opened it and maybe you saved it, maybe you didn't. But the file actually was now different from what it was when you opened it, but you didn't actually modify it. And then there was all kinds of stuff. So I'm, I'm super happy I'm not using that. But I guess this was kind of a, a in, in a way, a low-code approach to doing workflows and stuff like that. You could use it to build like lightweight workflows. And I saw a lot of complex workflows also done in, in that kind of tool. And I mean, that's a decade ago, right? It's it's a long time ago since since those things, you know, started happening. More than that, it's 15 years ago, I think. Uh, so it's, it's a long time ago. So so this entire story about low code, no code, and and you know professional developers, or I think I saw now recently the last year, Microsoft pushed hard for something called Fusion Dev, which is a mix of all of this. Uh, and I see companies hiring like crazy for Fusion developers, which is just a new word for you know you should know everything. You should have 25 years of experience of all of these things, and and they just take everything they can find online and, and push into that thing. Um. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm super happy I'm not using SharePoint Designer anymore. Um, as a side note, on the other hand, I also don't know how many who tune into this show who even knows what SharePoint Designer is. <laughs> if you don't, you don't have to go search for it. You will never need it, and you should never install it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, there's a jealousy side of me that's like, oh my God, you got out of SharePoint so long ago. I'm, I'm jealous <laughs> of that. I got, I got, I mean, I, I kind of got, I don't want to say stuck, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a part of me that's envious of it, where it's just, you know, you want, I, I like to focus more in the Azure space and more on the the core dev stuff than, it, it's so funny, you hear, I hear all the developers that are talking about SharePoint stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I, I do client-side web dev, and they're like, well, how do I do it with the SharePoint framework? I'm like, it's just React, let's just focus on the React side, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, so previously, we've talked about Azure Functions in a couple of episodes. We had Mark uh, to talk with us in episode 97 about durable functions. And a bit before that, we had Elio to talk about Azure Static Web Apps. And I, I think we didn't really talk that much about functions, but more about the capabilities of Azure Static Web Apps. So today on, on Azure Functions, especially the deployments and monitoring and, 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 and whatnot. So, so Andrew, what do you use and how do you use Azure Functions today? So I use it for a bunch of stuff, um, both for really the glue that runs my business. Um, but I also use it as, um, in a lot of like, a lot of the stuff we do, like in Microsoft 365 dev stuff is not done server. It's not done server side. It's all done client side. And so like, for example, people that are doing SharePoint development today, they don't do it server side. Like we used to do well, way back when Tobias and I got to work together. Um, but these days now you're building client side solutions that are calling back home. Um, so in that case, to me, the mo thing that makes the most sense for doing that is to use uh, Azure Functions. But like, kind of, it's funny, you mentioned the two episode, prior episodes that you guys have talked about this with um, some of your guests. I, all of my business is run uh, using a handful of different SaaS products um, from payment processing to a learning management system to video delivery, email, et cetera. Uh, and then my public sites are all static sites running up and uh, in Azure, um, just in Azure storage blobs, not using the Azure static web app piece. But to do anything dynamic, I'm doing everything with Azure functions. And so like, for example, just to, some small examples, um, when you come to the, the Voitano site, my company site, or my personal blog, um, I dynamically generate the open graph social images that people would use when you go to share uh, a post. Um, so the way I do that, is there's a link that I generate, I send it over to an Azure function. And all that does internally is that actually takes some stuff off the query string, makes a request out to a page that I host on my site that generates a web page um, that takes the values out of the query string to get the title, the image that's used for the blog post or article, uh, the category and the URL. 
And then I use an Azure function to, after I've loaded that page in a headless browser, I then use the, the same headless browser, um, Google's Puppeteer, to take a snapshot of that image, save it to an Azure storage blob, and then I respond to the original request with a 302, 300, 301 or 302, I always get mixed up, um, with a URL to the CDN version of it. So essentially I'm using an Azure function to dynamically generate images for the social graph for my site. Um, that's just one example, but like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tiny business. I'm a, you know, solopreneur, solopreneur, micropreneur, however you want to say it. So functions is really good for me to roll out really quick solutions. But the other thing that I'm really cognizant of, which is kind of what we were, we're going to talk about a little bit is that I, I can't afford to have things break because I'm the only person, I'm the only dev. And so when something breaks, it completely derails everything. So I've got, you know, full testing with everything. I've got full deployment of everything. Nothing is deployed from my laptop. Everything is deployed and managed to my different environments um, in Azure uh, using workflows and automation and all that kind of stuff. So, so for Azure functions, um, when, when I started using Azure Functions back, back whenever they came av available, I, I figured, well, it's, it's C-sharp, obviously. So for you, since you work so much with, with, with client side and the full stack as well, is it C-sharp for you? Or did you choose something else? Or is it a mix of whatever fits best uh, given the, the situation and requirement? Uh, it's, a little, it's a little bit of a mashup of that. So I don't use .NET for anything. Uh, right now, I use um, primarily everything I do is going to be Node-based. So TypeScript and Node, that's everything. Um, so all of my functions are all Node-based, are all you know, written in TypeScript, and they're all Node-based. And the, honestly, the primary reason for doing that um, is the context switching. Um, I use the exact same testing tools, the exact same linting tools, the exact same project structure. Everything across all of my projects, whether they're React projects, whether they're Azure Functions projects, Everything is the exact same language. I'm using everything, the same kind of packages, um, all of that stuff. The only benefit that I, that I find in using a compiled language these days is performance, but none of my stuff is like crazy dependent on really high performing things, um, memory overhead, et cetera. It's not like I can't do it. I mean, I've got, you know, I'll get a spike where I'll run an ad campaign and I'll get a ton of requests coming to my site and function spins up just enough stuff to go through and to get it, to get the job done and to, to, um, to handle the workload that comes at me. Uh, or like when I, you know, if I publish an update to my course, I know I'm going to have a ton of people coming in and watching videos and processing analytics and everything, all of this still done with, with Azure function. So it can scale up or scale out as much as it needs. If I do need something compiled, um, I don't use .NET for one, for one primary reason today. Um, my compiled stuff that I like to do is I like to put it, I like to do stuff in Go and uh, use a container to host that stuff. And the main reason I do that, part of the reason I'm going to use a compiled thing is, yes, that's in the case of like performance, but it's also that I find that if you just live in one place, you don't get much perspective on how the rest of the world does things. Um, so like, it's nice to dabble in AWS. It's nice for me to dabble in like GCP. So you can kind of compare like, you know, I like Azure, I like Azure's portal, but there's a lot of things that AWS does better. There's a lot of things that GCP does better. They do at least differently. And you're like, oh, I can kind of take up that technique. Um, so I, I, that's one reason is to kind of keep that diversity. Uh, but the other reason, like the main reason I don't, really like .NET is that I've, since they went with the whole, uh, from traditional .NET or whatever it used to be called, basically non-cross-platform to where now it's cross-platform. I think it's called .NET Core, but then there was this whole like .NET Core, .NET Standard, .NET Framework. Every, and then there were, when they went from .NET Core 5 to .NET Core 6 recently, I maintain a bunch of content for Microsoft and I had to, I still had to put my fingers in .NET and still get a bunch of stuff done. And it was amazing to me, like the changes from one major version to the next was so abrupt. And there were so many things that broke that I had to go back and relearn. And it felt like I just kind of looked around and I'm like, why doesn't it, why are these the only guys that really feels like I'm doing, I'm, when .NET does a major revision now, 
it feels like I went from Windows 95 to Windows XP to Windows 2000 or to Windows Vista. It's no longer like those, oh, here's a little update that's just a couple little new things. Like I don't need big changes. I just like just improve and iterate. I don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we do a big update. So that's that's really the main reason is because I just I find that .NET is just too jarring when they go from one thing to the next one and keeping things straight. The marketing has always been really confusing to me, at least the last yeah. five, six years or so. Yeah, I, I really like this perspective. And I like here that you, you touch on the choice is not because you like Node.js or that you like one or the other, but there's also like tangible reasons for, for why you're doing it. And something that I see a lot you know, if you go on Twitter, social media, you, you know, and, and you follow developer channels on, on LinkedIn or wherever you spend your time, um, you see a lot of developers, they pitch their framework that because they love it or because I like this technology or I like to build stuff in it, but very seldom they take into consideration what you mentioned, like, well, the rest of my stack is now based on Node.js or TypeScript, or I'm, I'm using this library I'm using these frameworks, these tools, these testing frameworks. I'm like the bigger picture, my CI, CD pipelines, they're based on this. All of these things tie into the choice of, of the platform or the, the framework that you kind of use as well. Um, and I think this is something to, to always try and consider whether you, you're choosing between .NET or, or Node.js or something else. It is always important not to just see, otherwise it kind of becomes a discussion, well, I love Firefox better than Chrome, right? Mm -hmm but there is no real reason other than the UI might be better or you personally have this affliction for, for one browser or the other and the same with uh, development frameworks. So I really like this. You, you elaborated a lot on, on very tangible reasons for using one or the other. Um, from personal experience, I'm still on .NET, started with .NET in 2001, so it's quite some time now. Um, everything we write is .NET 6 now, um, soon hopefully upgrading to .NET 7 whenever that becomes available. Um, and, and the same thing there. It's not a choice that I make that we need to use .NET just because I have a long experience with it. But everyone in the team, like if we have 30 developers and testers and automation engineers who build you know, functional and UI tests for it, if all of them know .NET and are familiar with all the tools we use around it, that's what we use. Not because it's .NET, but in this case, because the entire team knows it. So this way we become productive. Um, but I, yeah, so I really like this story. Um, and you also mentioned testing. So how, like, what is your approach to testing these things? You, you mentioned that you're the single guy in your company and you need to ensure that it never breaks. So therefore you do a lot of testing around it. Um, what are like your go-to points for ensuring that it never breaks? Like what is your testing setup or your, your testing scenario or situation? If I'm doing so because I'm doing everything with uh, .NET, uh, or sorry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just go through and completely undercut We converted him quickly. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I'm doing everything with Node or in a, on a Node stack, essentially, um, then I'm using the the testing framework from uh, Facebook is called Jest. Um, so it's really elegant, really expressive. Uh, it replaces a lot of the stuff that I used to use in the past. Like I used to be a Jasmine person and then having to use Chai to, along with Jasmine to be able to uh, have my test suite and then my bunch of the UI harnesses and, and um, assert uh, assertion libraries. Jest does everything. Um, the only thing that Jest doesn't do is TypeScript. It just does JavaScript. And so, But they have a concept of preprocessors and you can put a TypeScript preprocessor in there so that it'll it jumps in front of it. So that's the core of my, of my stuff. Um, just gives me everything I need, including the, um, the whole mocking framework that I would need. So like in the JavaScript world, we use something called sign-on or a lot of people use sign-on, uh, S-I-N-O-N, um, to do a lot of their like fakes and mocks and stubs and spies. Um, but in just, we have all that stuff native built in and, like so much so that some of my projects are, are using sign-on until I realized that Jess had it in there and I've still got this like my technical debt task list. And it's just like go through and migrate these two sites to, to use just all Jess stuff so we can get rid of something else. Um, so that's part of it. If it's anything that's UX-based or UI-based, um, I try to do everything with React. And for that, there's a library um, that works really well with Jest uh, from Airbnb. It's called Enzyme. And it's a, 
um, it basically takes the, the rendering layer of Jest and it extends on it to make and have different, different like adapters for the different versions of, of React. So 16, 17, 18 is coming soon um, to be able to, to, to allow Enzyme to work with those. And so what's nice about that is it gets like, you know, full automation of saying, hey, render out these controls, simulate a click, sim simulate a drag drop, simulate these different events, um, or just do snapshots to where I can say, you know, render out this HTML. The first time I look at it, everything looks good. Okay, cool. Save that snapshot. So in the future, if tests fail, it's checking to see what's been rendered and not what shows up in the browser, but what's the markup and compare that markup to the markup I generated last time. If there's a delta, that's a failure. That's a failed test. Um, so that's the that's the the gist of using Jest for my testing. Um, the way that you know, one of the things you asked about was I making sure that stuff never breaks. And one of the things, what, a practice that I do, I may be speaking for other devs as well. You guys may even have the same kind of thing. But as an old dev who's you know done this stuff for years, I remember the days of the big monolithic rollouts. We'd have a you know a Friday night rollout that we're going to do and say we're going to be down for maintenance for seven hours. While hopefully this rollout should take an hour, but let's give ourselves some buffer. I was terrified of of deploying stuff to production. Part of that was from a major mistake I made my first few months after being out of university um, at my first job. Thankfully, I didn't get fired, but it was a lesson, quite the lesson learned. So that today, um, I actually do deployments of just about every single one of the things that runs our business. We do uh, three or four deployments every single day of the same thing, even if there's no changes. Like the Voitanos.io website, it gets redeployed four times a day. Um, but only with a complete fresh build, only if 100% of the tests pass. And when something doesn't pass, red stuff goes off. You go and look at it. What was it? Was it a dependency that, that failed? Was it just a hiccup in the things or whatever? Um, which is kind of funny, right? Because we do, I do all this stuff from GitHub and using GitHub Actions. And I just recently bumped it from two times a day to four times a day about three weeks ago. And the bug that's going around on Twitter today from the GitHub Actions billing issue, <clears throat> I got an email yesterday that told me I had used 100% of my uh, my spent my $100 a month spending limit. And I looked at it, and it's like, you spent $7,000. I'm like, that's a lot more than 100% of your $100 spending limit. <laughs> Thankfully, when I looked on Twitter and saw somebody else like at Wistia was saying, hey, we apparently used 30,000 days in one month and we have a one point uh, $127 million bill. I'm like, okay, other people have bigger issues. I don't need to open a ticket for this. They're getting some flack. <laughs> nice. So, but that's, right, yeah, so I think that that to me is what gives me my confidence of like what testing is really helping is like always rolling it out, always redeploying everything multiple times a day, including my functions. And yeah, so I'm, I'm, kind of I'm, yeah, that kind of answers my, my other question. Cause uh, you mentioned, initially that you're kind of rolling things out. And as a professional developer, we have the ALM process. We have things where we check the code in and then do some things. And obviously you just mentioned you're using GitHub Actions for this. Um, we're using Azure DevOps and GitHub Actions for different things. So like, what does the setup look like? And now, now we're talking about functions today. And what does the setup in GitHub Actions look like for rolling these things out, like the, the project, the functions, the websites, and, and all these things. And like you, you said, you, you get the red flags, so you have to deal with it, and then it, it doesn't get deployed. And like, what, what do you need to think about? Is there a specific workflow you have around these things? Or do you see also that GitHub Actions simplify things comparing to Azure DevOps or the way we used to roll things out before? Yeah, so it's a bunch of questions there. I'll, let me start with the easy one. Um, I used to do everything with Azure DevOps, but I I I lifted everything and got out of Azure DevOps and went over to GitHub Actions for the sole reason that, I mean, to me, it's, this isn't disclosing anything that I've heard like NDA, NDA or anything from Microsoft, but to me, the writing on the wall and that GitHub Actions is the future for Microsoft in terms of their automation um, rollout uh, compared to Azure DevOps. Microsoft isn't shutting down Azure DevOps, but I think that they're, you can just tell that all the big people, the big PMs that were in Azure DevOps, when you look at them now over in GitHub Actions, they're all trying to build, or GitHub just in general, 
they're all trying to build up things like the equivalent of boards, the equivalent of task lists, um, the equivalent of um, the pipelines that we have in Azure, all that stuff is getting built up in GitHub. So I was like, you know what? I'm switching over. I'm going to focus on everything with GitHub. I'm going to stay over there because I can see that that's where the investments are going and the investments aren't going in Azure DevOps. There's nothing wrong with Azure DevOps. I just wanted to be where I wanted to, I wanted to go where the puck was going and not where it is. Um, so I was trying to give my analogy for, you know, me being from Florida, you guys being from Scandinavia, I was trying to stick with the hockey. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the big thing, so that's, that's one. Um, when it looks, when I look at like static sites, uh, those just get, I just build and deploy those straight to production every single time, multiple times a day. Um, nothing really fancy to kind of keep a, a move from, that's going to be a blocker that has eyes on going from one environment to the next environment uh, so much. And that's just, honestly, that that's a standard, like that's a standard, like a automation process of run your build, make sure if the build passes, then run all of your tests. If all the tests pass, then run your, whatever the process is of generating the site. So for me, that's generating a bunch of JavaScript files and bundles, shipping those JavaScript bundle source maps to um, Azure Storage Blob that has been configured with App Insights for being able to unpack any exceptions that happen client side. Um, and then take the entire rollout of the site and just upload that to a storage blob. That to me is pretty straightforward, is pretty, is pretty simple. I've written a bunch about that on my site on how, on how I do that with um, my static site. Uh, it's Hugo based uh, to do that and how to do things like notify Azure Cat or CDN to go purge certain files from cache, like an RSS file or an index page or something like that. And then also the, how to tell cognitive, ser cognitive search to re-index the index file that I generate. Functions though is a little bit different because functions is a real like, this environment has settings, this environment has settings. I wanna make sure that certain things are rolled out in the right way. So with functions, I've kind of taken, uh, like, like so many of us do, I looked at what other people were doing took the stuff that I liked about certain things and then came up with some of my own processes. So it, the gist of how my how I roll my functions out is that I do all my dev local. I do it all just using the Azure functions um, or the, just the local development tools that we have. Uh, and for any kind of integration with Azure, um, if I need to spin up something locally, I use the Azureite uh, container to do like the Azure storage stuff but anything else i mock it up uh i don't do any i don't do that stuff like with any of my testing so like i do a bunch of queries to uh log analytics uh or to just forgot the other one but i use like i mock up log analytics um sdk so that i'm not making real calls to log analytics but i'm i don't i want to make sure that i'm testing my code and not their not their systems yeah um so then what I end up doing is when I roll out something to my master branch is essentially, I treat my master branch as whatever's in master is what's supposed to be in production. That should be a mirror image of what production is. Master main, whatever people want to call it. Um, if I push out an update to master, that's going to trigger a build, but I don't want things, I don't want that environment to go straight to production. So what that does is I have that one do a build and deploy straight to, from uh, GitHub, that'll deploy straight to the staging slot on my Azure function uh, app, on my resource. It uses something like uh, Bicep, so the a DSL of ARM templates, uh, to be able to look at what my desired state is, and I let Bicep go through and figure out like what's missing, what should be there. So if someone nuked my my Azure function, my Azure resource, I should be able to go back over to GitHub Actions and say, do this again, and it provisions everything up. The only thing that's kind of missing is little stuff like custom domain name and stuff like that. Um, but those, again, those are all managed via settings. So once that goes over to my, my staging slot, I also have as part of that update, I update a couple settings in the staging slot. So I do things like I write the version number of my project that gets pulled straight from the package.json file uh, in my project. Um, and I also write the commit SHA uh, of the commit that did the push. Both of those are properties that I add to my, um, to my app settings. 
let's say that everything is good if it was a push to master. One of the other things that it does is that I have an, a separate workflow that when I want to move, do my swap of my staging slot over to production, that is not something I ever want to do in Azure. I want GitHub to automate all of it because unlike some people, I've got a terrible short-term or long-term memory. Um, I always forget which one it is, which is kind of ironic, but the, what I want, what I, I always forget like what my deployment stuff is like. So I end up documenting everything um, because I don't, I don't do it as often as I need to, to keep it, you know, present of mind. So I use uh, a workflow to be my documentation. So when I want to roll from my staging slot over to production, all I have to do is on my local uh, clone of my repo is I create a tag uh, of the version that I want to roll out. I tag the code where it is, and then I push that tag up. That triggers in GitHub a workflow to automatically run that creates a new release, but it creates it as a draft. I then go into that release I, in GitHub. I make the updates that I want to make to it. Here's the changes that are being applied to this one. Here's the version number, which has already been pre-populated, but I make sure it's correct. I give it a name, all that kind of stuff. And then when I publish that release, that triggers another workflow in GitHub to run that basically says swap the slots, and then it manually makes a change to the, the settings um, in the Azure function. And so what's nice about that is that number one, everything is automated, but everything is also well monitored because I'm a like I'm a heavy user of um, Azure App Insights, like more so than probably I need to be. But every single thing that's run is every bit of telemetry that I log. It, uh, it I use the the stuff that we have in App Insights where you can put a uh, like a, a, a some data on the envelope that gets sent to to App Insights, yeah, like a custom and, dimension. Yeah, like a custom dimension. So I have a property called, well, I use one of the out-of-the-box properties called app version. Um, and I set the, whatever the version is of my project, I always set the, the version number in that. If it's in the staging slot, then it just says staging. But if it's in production slot, then it always has the actual number. And the commit SHA is also there as well. Shouldn't need to do both, but I do it anyway. So that way it's really easy to go into app insights. If there's a bug, I fix the bug and I roll it out. I can do a really quick filter to be like, is the bug still there? Nope, bug's gone. Sweet. Okay, well, let's look at the old version. Yep, bug's there. I'm like, okay, cool. So I've either silenced the bug or actually fixed it. <laughs> so to make sure I did it the right way. <laughs> yeah. To make sure that catch like, has got something in it. I, I really like this. I, I spent a lot of my time because I've worked a lot with operations today. I'm operating everything that we, we put to use in the cloud and building our SaaS uh, SaaS solutions. So I, I spent a lot of time in App Insights, Log Analytics, and Azure Monitor generally. And, um, you know, all this extra data that you can put, like the, the metadata of your your commit, um, the commit child, or, or uh, you know, the exact version that you pull from your package file or stuff like this. We also do the same, but from .NET, we take the, the assembly version, which is dynamically created on every build. We put that in. So the same thing, when we log things, we always know where it's coming from especially when you operate kind of a microservice architecture. And we have, in our case, we were deployed in the US, we're deployed in Europe, we're deployed in Australia, you know, we're deployed in, in different places over the, the globe and more regions are coming. And then when some of these things that are deployed in multiple places in the same region goes to the same kind of app insight or log analytics, we don't kind of go cross region for data sovereignty reasons. Um, but then if you have microservices, sometimes you update one component, like the containers or the function app or the web app. Sometimes you update all of them. And exactly what you mentioned here is something that we bumped into quite a few times where the bug appeared in one version, but not the other. And it was super tricky to figure that out. So we, we did this similar trick, uh, which is just reiterating uh, that this is not just a good idea. This is a, an excellent idea to do because even if you don't need it today, when you scale out and you scale up and you get more workloads, and just to put that into perspective, we in our logging system and the amount of requests we do, we're talking about in the billions of transactions a month that we do. It's impossible for us to keep a track of this and try to figure out where it came from. We need these tags so we can say, okay, this week we released seven times, but this started appearing three days ago. Then we can kind of try and figure out what release cost it. And then we can find it and then fix it. So this is a super tip. 
And, and I also realize now I got so many ideas in my brain from what you just said. So we also need to do another episode on, on just monitoring with Azure Monitor, App Insight, Log Analytics, those things. Uh, separate discussion, um, but I, I really like the way, way you do these things. And you also mentioned that you provision things with Bicep. I think we had a, an episode where we also talked about Bicep. We use that heavily as well. I'm super happy with this. Um, also love this idea of uh, like a desired state and current state. This is what I have, but this is what I want. I just deploy and it's like an additive or incremental kind of deploy to, uh, to what we have. Um, one thing I wanted to add to that is the one thing that uh, you know, I see that we rely also heavily on is Azure Key Vault and managed identities to access the mm. Key Vault. Um, this is the one thing that we don't easily provision or cannot easily provision because the keys and secrets are obviously super secret. So we cannot have it in source code. We cannot kind of replicate or roll that out. So then we need a backup of that somehow. But everything else, I'm, it's very similar to what you're explaining here. And, and I also love this. Okay, Azure went down. Now we need to set everything back up. All right, here's what I want to deploy. This is what it's supposed to look like. Push all the settings, put, push everything on go entire custom domain names, maybe use Cloudflare to tie something in if you use that. And that's it. So the, like the, the story becomes simple. It, it really does. And I mean, one thing that you just touched on that is something that I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm embracing a lot more now. I'm trying to move all my stuff over to it. Um, prioritize this above like getting rid of sign-on. Um, the JavaScript testing library, not like the authentication thing, um, is not just replacing things with managed identities and with keys and everything, but the new support that GitHub Actions has with Azure of being able to create a trusted identity to where now there is zero credential that is stored in your repo or anything. And the fact that I can now say, I'm creating an identity, this identity is tied to GitHub, specifically this org and this repo and this workflow or this branch, is allowed to push to, and I can give it a permission to say, is allowed to actually write to this Azure function. So now from GitHub, I know that my only you know, vulnerability or my only um, attack vector is if someone has access to that GitHub repo and they know how to make a change to push to master, which there's lots of ways to go through and to protect that, that you can't roll anything out into my Azure environment. Like you are, it is, it is that locked down. Being able to do that and not have to you know, worry about where your secrets are and where they're configured and all that kind of jazz is absolute bliss. And the, the stuff where they, want to, where they want to go with that and to make it to add even more uh, capabilities to that is just, I, I love what, Git, what GitHub and Azure are doing, their integration or their, their partnership in that sense. It really, does, it really does make your life easy because like you said, that, that stuff, the keys and everything, I use, I, I use Key Vault as well and just change the names of the keys. Uh, I use Key Vault and what's the other one? App settings to go through and to manage stuff that's like, you know, this environment, this environment, how do I easily swap things over and do a, a like a batch change? And so it's a, um, it's pretty cool. The only, the only thing I wish that Azure gave us was something that was more like I could wrap up a bunch of changes in a transaction. Like I would love to say yeah. these app settings and these Key Vault settings and this function's deployment, I want to go like old school SQL server. Here's the whole thing. Start making these changes. And if something doesn't, if something fails, go back to what it was before we started on all three. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know <laughs> yep. if we'll ever get, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but that's the one I really want because right now it's, right now it's just a send a high bang email like going, it's the, oh crap, somebody, somebody look at this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of fire and forget going on there. And, and you touched on something that, uh, we, we had a discussion recently, uh, a lengthy discussion with someone at Microsoft about these things when we provision things to Azure. And can we make it so we can roll things back? And I'm not talking about your function didn't work. Okay, then stop the deployment. But exactly this, I want to push five settings or five keys or five secrets to the Key Vault. I'm reconfiguring my managed identity. I'm creating a new identity, tying that to the function app. Like there's a, a lot of things I'm doing. And if it doesn't work, just roll it back. But Right now, it's more like fire and forget. You have to execute all of these things separately. And if one of them fails, you have kind of a half-baked solution that may or may not work, and you have to go look at it. Um, so yeah, hopefully that'll be taken care of in the future, but, but definitely something we need to spend quite some time on today. The way that I've seen this done, I've talked to two, I have two 
close friends that do this with their organization. One of them is a massive like financial services uh, in the United States. Um, they implement it themselves using uh, bicep so that they have like beginning of transaction. Let's call that like bicep V4. And in the, in the whole process that goes on during the rollout is bicep V5. And if anything in that rollout or the code that's also being deployed with V5, then it basically says, okay, we know what the checkpoint was before that push out, use, you know, run bicep V4 and then push out the code that was associated with that. The only thing I don't like about it right now with, with like stuff with bicep and Azure, unless you can enlighten me on something is that there's not a good, um, like provisioning of infrastructure, great with bicep and then provisioning of the code that goes in that infrastructure disconnected. It's like, I like to be able to, can I go, can I somehow have like this universal package deploy that is bicep, but it also has like, here's the whatever that needs to be deployed as well. Even if you're pointing to like, just as like a webhook, just like point to that repo, pull the stuff from that repo or rerun that, rerun that workflow. Um, yeah, I think I'd you can to point to a blob. So if you have a, if you create a zip package of your web app or the function app and you put that in a blob, I think you can point to that from the template. At least you can in ARM templates. So I, I assume that you can do it in bicep because it's just a transpilation of, of ARM. That's a good point. So if they put that in the ARM API, then you should be able to do it. But again, it's, then it's only the zip package. So whatever you packaged as a zip deployment for the web app or the function app, that's the thing you point to. And then mm -hmm. that can be deployed at the same time. I used that in the past, but you know, none of these things come as it says in the docs, like you just do this and everything will be fine. Or you see a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation on a conference, you know, it's whatever. You just hit F5 and everything works and right-click deploy, everything is in production. It's like, that's not how it works, man. This, this, is, this is not reality. I, I love the marketing speech. I love the idea of that this is how it's supposed to work. But, you know, reality and the different variables we have in our organizations, of course, will, you know, wildly change whether this is going to work or not. Um, so I, I kind of accept that we have a few manual steps still, um, but yeah, we're moving in the right direction at least. I, I agree. I, I don't care if they're manual as long as there's an API behind it so I can automate the manual step. But it's it's funny. You said this a second ago, and this is, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but absolutely drives me crazy when you go to a conference and they're like, here's how all this stuff works. And they hit like F5. I'm like, I want to walk into a session and be like, okay, you have to take the F5 key off your machine. Show me how you're really doing this in production. Show me how you're really rolling this out because no one's using F5 that they'll admit to at a large organization. If they're doing it mm -hmm. with F5, they don't, that's not something they put in their quarterly uh, earnings report. So they, they share with their customers. <laughs> yeah, just, just uh, last week, I was in Berlin for the European uh, Power Platform Conference. And, and somebody, I, I can't recall if it was somebody from Microsoft or somebody else, was mentioning about some some fancy feature how you can uh, uh, integrate Dataverse databases to Azure SQL to to replicate things so that you can do more advanced analytics in Azure and it's fun seeing stuff like this on a slide and it just it just works You're like <laughs> no 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 it doesn't really work there's a lot of things you have to do to get it just right and so that it works but one of the things that is sort of a key takeaway for me on all of this. I'm seeing Node.js, I'm seeing GitHub Actions, I'm seeing this and that. And to me, it seems, Andrew, that that the setup and the systems and the deployment models that you've built, you utilize Azure, but whenever you feel, well, perhaps I don't want to do it just like what the only option in Azure would be, you can just freely and dynamically go and use something else like GitHub Actions or or you can choose not to use an SDK, but mock something on that. Has this been initially and from the get-go as a sort of a design principle, or is it something that you sort of grew into and figured, well, I can actually do it like this? This, this is something I grew into, but it was I came, acro I came across this attitude or this mindset um, really by accident. So back in 2013, I used to run a training company. Um, I finally was just at the point where I was like, you know what, I need to, I've done the same thing for 10 years, SharePoint development, essentially. I was like, I'm done. I've got to do something different. And I got rid of my Windows machine. I stopped using .NET. I got rid of uh, SharePoint from my life. And I went full bore, Angular, Node, Mac OS, all that stuff. And 
what I found was that spending more time at the console, like all my stuff's in Git, but I don't use a single Git graphical interface or anything. I do 100% of it through the command line. I'm, I generally, generally speaking, I don't use SDKs. I would rather go straight to the REST endpoint because I find that the S, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, I find that working with an SDK is using someone else's interpretation of how something should work, but using their interpretation of it and not so much maybe exactly how it's supposed to work. So all of my deployment, all of my rollouts and everything, I, I use minimal SDKs. I try to use, go straight to the REST endpoints. In fact, you'll see if you looked at my workflows for like rolling out Azure Functions, a lot of the stuff that I end up doing is either using uh, curl, uh, so going straight REST call, straight from the, the request, and using utility to process the JSON of the YAML that comes back. Or the most, the farthest that I'll go with it is to use like the Azure CLI um, because it's pretty darn close to the REST endpoint. But like I don't, in my deployments of things, I don't like using the the actions that uh, Microsoft has put in the in the GitHub marketplace. Um, I prefer not to use an SDK if I can. Um, although the the dot the Node SDK the the NPM SDKs that Azure has doing a great job of standardizing across the board uh, has been they've done a really good job from the identity stuff to log analytics to uh, storage. Uh, or we well, yeah, storage blobs. Um, they've done a really good job. So I, I, but I, one of the things I like about that is that I find that by not going at that, those levels of abstraction, you, you come to find, you, you come to a better understanding of how things work. Um, and so when something breaks, it's easy to kind of peel back the onion and figure it out. I think, I mean, the two of you are, are, are very sharp. I and mean, I've seen the stuff that you guys have worked on in the past, but like when something breaks and everybody's like, ah, oh, you know, this whole thing broke or, you know, this, this thing broke when I was making some calls, some rest call and some client side solution. A lot of developers don't think to open up the developer tools, go to the network tab and like, let's see the actual rest HTTP call that was being made. And they look at the call and it's like going, this call doesn't work. And I'm like, well, that's because this look at the rest endpoint that it's actually going to like, there's something wrong in the SDK or how you're, you know, you're not holding it right kind of a thing. And I, I find that a lot of people don't, they don't, because they don't understand how stuff works, then they don't understand when it breaks, like where they're supposed to go other than I'm just going to go rant on Twitter. I'm going to go open up a, uh, a ticket. It's like, try and figure this stuff out because a lot of this stuff is pretty darn transparent to us, especially when we're doing all this stuff over REST and everything uh, with a standard REST request or something. Gets a little more confusing if, like, you know, the endpoint's a gRPC type endpoint, much faster, but also, you know, down in ones and zeros. But still, it's like it. I I, I like. I, I found that when I switched over and got went away from my old school way of doing things, and forced my way of doing things more on the console and doing things more with REST, that I I felt like I was a I was becoming a better and stronger and deeper developer, and it made it to where. Really, what I do now in the education space, it's easy for me to go through and start peeling things back and figuring out how does something work. And so, you know, I, it's a common thing that I do. Like when Microsoft releases a new version of the SharePoint framework, they'll have their release notes. But I go over and I'm like, let's peel back the onion. Let's see what's actually in this release. And you find stuff like, and people are like, how do you figure this stuff out? I'm like, it's just a diff <laughs> of two files. You just have to know where to look. And <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, so... I, I really like this uh, the example there where where a SharePoint framework comes with a new version and you have to kind of take a look at what happened. One thing that we encountered more times than not is exactly this: something doesn't work with the SDK. Again, it's supposed to work like this. You read the docs, like you make this call, you're supposed to get this data back. Like with the the Microsoft Graph API, you know the documentation says you're supposed to get this data, but you don't for whatever reason. Is it a fault in the SDK? Is it a fault? In the REST endpoint, is it a fault with the data actually returned from from those, or is it a fault in how you make the call? You don't know. Um, so I, you know, as a SharePoint developer, just going back in time a little bit, um, when something called CSUM was launched, uh, client side, what's it called? Client side. Client side object. I don't model. even remember. 
Yeah, there you go. I don't even remember. <laughs> I'm so happy to be out of the SharePoint space. So when that was I haven't launched, used it, it was like a, my defense, I haven't used it in years. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so then we're both lucky. Yeah. Um, what I remember is they shipped a DLL or a bunch of DLLs and, and you could use those in your projects. But sometimes things didn't work out or it was supposed to do something, but it didn't. And one thing I had to learn the, the hard way there as a developer was use Fiddler or whatever type, type of tool and have that open at the same time as you, from your local host, try to make the call to SharePoint, which is a remote server somewhere. And then you could actually see the call that the SDK made behind the scenes because I don't know if it is now, but back then this was not open source. You just got a DLL, but you couldn't see what well, code went in it. So you can really debug it. You just saw that, okay, that didn't work. So try something else. Um, but using Fiddler or like diving into that, you could see that this API call in the SDK failed, but you could then see the actual REST call and the tokens and the bear tokens and everything that went with it. So then you could move over to whatever the tool was at that time, but today I use Postman. So you could kind of mm-hmm. take the bearer token in there. You could make the REST call directly yourself, and then you could try to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also got this question. I, I spent a lot of time 15 years ago and 10 years ago doing training as well. I always got the question, how do you figure these things out? Because in the documentation, it says you're supposed to hit a five or you're supposed to do two lines of code and then you get the data. But if it doesn't work, how do you figure that out? Because I need to go to Microsoft and tell them it doesn't work. And that was exactly it. So I think that's actually a, a core skill. Um, if, if anyone today says, what, what is your like, top one thing you need to learn as a developer in the Azure space or whatever, wherever, or whatever technologies, learn like when you make a call and that doesn't work, understand what call it's actually making. So I, I think you're touching on something that could easily become another episode in, you know, altogether um, oh, totally. to, to kind of digest that. It, it, you were talking earlier about like how microservices architecture and stuff breaks and you have to have like the, the logging and everything. I'll, I'll never forget the, the, the best analogy when, when microservices was becoming all the rage, like what, three years ago or so. Um, someone's like, oh yeah, you know, we get to put microservices. So when we don't have to sit there's some monolith that when it breaks, it goes, yeah, but when something on microservices break, it's like, a, you know, you turn around, you have no idea what happened. It ends up being like a murder mystery that nobody was around. And <laughs> same thing, right? It's like, I, I, when I want to hire somebody, the number one thing, if I'm looking, I will pay for it. But the number one thing I'm looking for, how do you troubleshoot? How do you, how do you figure out what the root of the problem is? How, how do you think? How do you think? Yeah. What's your thought process? And when you have to go, when like if I had an issue with the graph and I was trying to figure something out, I'm not going to them and showing them like, what's your code look like? No, no, no. Here's a curl call. Look at this. You need a token. Do this. This is the result I'm getting back. Is that right? That doesn't look right. You go, yeah, but what does your code look like? I'm like, it's a curl call. I'm going straight to your endpoint. I'm getting bypassing all those abstraction layers. This is not right. right? Correct. And they're like, yeah, that's incorrect. I'm like, okay. What does your code look like? I'm like, oh my God. Well, how about you fix it and I'll show you my code? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that for a lot of developers, having this sort of abstraction layers to SDKs and all the all the fancy automatically generated code and whatnot, it gives you also the, the sort of feeling of security that you're on top of things because all of these complex things, they just work. And if something fails, it requires you really like, like this mental push that I really want to dive deeper but you have this perhaps an irrational fear that what if on the next release of .NET Core, everything changes again? Am I just um, losing time by trying to learn this because next month it could be something totally different? I really like this approach on, on sort of going to the core and really trying to understand where the key is and then sort of deciding what layer is, is, is the best to work on. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it like this, I don't hate to say it like this, and I know people are going to hate me saying this, but I think a lot of it is because of, you know, Microsoft has a great reputation of building great dev tools, but I think that a lot of this point clicky kind of stuff and like the the move towards things like Power Platform, I think it's dumbing stuff down a lot. And I think that it really, it hurts the level of, it's kind of like, you know, like the unhealthy side of how people have, how a lot of society has gone to with like fast food and everything. It's because, because it takes too long to really understand cooking and how to do things the right way and do things healthily. So we go things with like fast food and it's faster and it's quicker. It's like, yeah, but you don't really understand, you know, what you're missing out on and what and how something, how something, why something is good and why something tastes good. Not because they had some chemicals to it, but it's like, you know, how stuff actually works. And I think that 
I think that Microsoft has actually done a disservice to, de to professional developers over the last 10 years because of this point clicky kind of stuff. I think there's a reason why VS Code has exploded in its, uh, in its adoption compared when you compare it to Visual Studio because so many of those like wizards and dialogues and stuff are gone away. And we're looking at like going, Hey, look, you do this in the YAML file. You got people like, I don't want to do it in the YAML file. Like, yeah, but that's something you can do in source control. And that's where you can really see, Oh, that was really a problem. It's not like go fill these things out in this, in this form field. It's like, no, 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 copy paste. It'll be the same. So I, yeah, it's a, it's a soapbox, soapbox issue for me. And I know that not everybody's going to agree with that, but um <laughs> Just you you mentioned uh, uh, one one last thing before we move to the unexpected question, but you mentioned that you use Git on the command line, and I always struggle because I don't use that on a daily basis. And a friend of mine pointed me to dangitgit.com uh, that has some helpful helpful uh, documentation if you mess up with things. And I'm glad to see it's also localized in Swedish and Finnish for me and Toby <laughs> to really understand this. Yeah, it, I, I like the. The thing that helps me a lot with it is that once you find a command, I have a you know, in my in my notebook in my Notion uh, notebook, I've got a a page of like Git shortcuts, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me you can create aliases, and so like I have a command that's just Git glog, so it's a Git graphical log, but it's all one word, and it allows me to see the tree from bottom up, most recent commits at the top, and I can see where everything where every commit is and what branch it's on and what branch I'm in and where the head is and stuff, and like. Once I saw once I saw someone post that in Stack Overflow, I made my version of Git glog. I have no idea how to retype it other than just going to the command line saying Git glog. And if I need it, I'll go back and find my alias Git glog and figure out what it, what it actually points to. Uh, but it's that kind of stuff. It's like you know, find your little tips and tricks that that to make things easier, but not to abstract it away where you can't actually get to it. Exactly. So the last thing we have is the unexpected question. Uh, so most people, including myself, I think I speak for Toby as well. Uh, we know Miami and the Keys in Florida, and you're based in there. Uh, and it seems, looking out the window, it's it's raining now, not snow today, though. Uh, it seems that you have an eternal summer. But somebody <laughs> wanting to visit Florida, do you get used to it always being sunny and warm and hot? or Or is it something that you don't even think about anymore? So I've always lived here. I've lived here my entire life. So it's kind of hard to have some perspective. Um, I live about five hours north. So Florida is a huge place. I live five hours north of Miami. I'm about nine hours north of Key West. I mean, it's a, it's a long, long drive. I can actually fly from where I live to, um, to Stockholm faster than I can drive to the Keys. Um, so, but yeah, it, uh, it is... Yes, it's something I'm used to, but I also find that it really does set, it sets your mindset. So like I've been, I, there's a couple of years where I worked in, um, uh, in Norway five, four times a year. So once a quarter and including dead of winter, when the sun didn't come up until 10 or 11 AM and was down by like two or 3 PM. Um, I, I'll never forget the summer that I was up in Trondheim and, uh, the sun barely went down for a little bit, but it never really got dark. And the first, I was there for two weeks. And when I got back to the United States and Florida, I, I missed my connection. So I got stuck in Atlanta, Georgia, a little bit farther North, but basically the sunlight's about the same where we are in Florida. I walked outside, it was completely dark and I was complete. I, I, it was, it was very unsettling. Like to your core, you're just like, something's not right here. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I get used to it. You, you get used to it. I mean, it, like this time of year is like the perfect weather in Florida um, from where I am. It's chilly in the morning, chilly. And I know you guys are going to laugh at this chilly being like uh, 50s, uh, 50 Fahrenheit, uh, high 40s, 50s Fahrenheit. Uh, in the afternoons, um, it's like low 80s ish. So like somewhere in the 20s for you guys for Celsius. Um and then it starts to cool off again. To me, there's only two bad months in Florida, uh, September and August. Um, when you see people move here to Florida, you're like, huh, bad time to do it. Or you see Microsoft picking Ignite Conference in Orlando, like September, <laughs> like going, 
we don't even want to be here. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Uh, so, but I mean, it's, it's nice. Uh, I, yeah, I love it. I love it. I like visiting other places, but I do find that I like the lack of sun, even in like the Pacific Northwest of the United States, the lack of sun is sometimes a year. It's just like, it messes with my head, but that's the, I, mean, I feel the same way about the ocean being like 15 minutes away. It's like just knowing that I'm not landlocked uh, is just a mindset kind of a thing. So. I, I think for both of us, Toby and myself coming from Scandinavia, having the sea close by, that's something you always want, regardless of where you decide or, or plan on living in. Totally. All righty. This was fun. I think this was one of the longest episodes we've ever done. And, and we'll definitely need to do this again sometime in the future. Perhaps drill down a bit on the monitoring and, and the other bits. Thank yeah, you, sure, Andrew. Thank you, everybody in the audience. And we hope you join us next week. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.